Hello friends, welcome back to another session on Survey of Theology. Today we're going to talk about uh, mankind, his creation, and we're going to talk about the historic fall of mankind. We're going to look at this from a biblical perspective. So let's go ahead and jump into this. Now, apart from divine revelation, uh, really mankind has no ability to know his origin and speculations abound. Now, the idea of evolution through natural selection, that is survival of the fittest, is the most prominent and prevalent theory set forth today. And that is absolutely correct. And so when we think about uh, atheistic uh, evolution, as soon as one uh, removes God, or the belief in God, or any revelation from God, what you're left with is a purely material universe, a materialistic universe. And this operates on anti-supernaturalistic presuppositions. Once, once you start that uh, way of thinking, you're operating on anti-supernaturalistic presuppositions. That is, you do not believe that there is any supernatural being or, or supreme being, God, uh, who is operating in the universe. So we, lived in a, we live in a closed system, as it were. And it's a purely material system. And the argument is that this came into being... Uh, purely as the product of chance that, and you know, what scientists argued years ago used to be billions of years, uh, four or five billion years is now, last I heard is roughly about 13.8 billion years, uh, they would argue is the uh, age of the universe, but they would argue that it came into being as the result of a big bang. Now, why say a big bang? Because scientists observe the universe as expanding. Well, that implies that there was some force that set it into this uh, expanding state. And so, logically, the argument is that there was some bang that basically uh, set it out into motion. So that's the argument for that. Now, again, this is speculation because nobody knows. Nobody was there. But the argument is that everything that exists is the product of matter, motion, time, and chance. And those things must be present. And not just matter, but in order for chemistry to work, matter must be set into motion. And then you need uh, time, and you need deep time uh, if you're operating on, again, the process of chance. Uh, you need deep time, so that's why they come up with these 13.8 uh, billion years is the, uh, is the most common number that's used today. But it also argues that everything is the product of chance, that there is no intelligent designer uh, that if there's design, it's, it gets, again, it's just the product of chance, but that there's no intelligent designer behind uh, the universe. And so it argues that everything is just the product of chance. So when we look at uh, mankind today and this very, very complex piece of biological machinery, which is just staggeringly complex uh, and works together uh, very well, uh, when one looks at it as a system, a very complex system, the argument is is that we just came about just randomly through random processes. And so what this does is it reduces mankind to just the accidental collection of molecules. Again, the accidental collection of molecules. We're just evolving bags of protoplasm. We come from the goo to the zoo to you, to borrow a phrase from Dr. Norman Geisler, 
and that there's really no reason for us to exist. Again, we're just the product of chance, that we come from nothing significant, we are nothing significant, and we go to nothing significant. And so this reduces mankind to a zero. Now, the atheist doesn't like this, and they say, oh, well, that's upsetting to me. Okay, well, whatever. Um, you know, and they'll talk about, I find it interesting because they'll talk about the value of man or they'll use talk about like the dignity of man. Well, where do you get that from? You know, where do you get those value statements from? Uh, you know, and what is the value of a rock? And really, if mankind is just the accidental collection of molecules, if there's no reason for us to exist any more than a rock, a fish, a bird, a worm, or anything else then you cannot say that man is of any greater value than anything else. And so therein lies the problem, because people don't like to feel that way. They don't like to feel like, like their life doesn't matter. And they also operate by, uh, by shoulds and oughts. They have a value system. And I find it interesting that they'll get upset, they'll cry something as uh, being unjust. Well, where do you get justice from? That's just really an artificial construct of the human mind because there's no moral absolute lawgiver outside of mankind, they would argue, and therefore no absolute moral laws. And so that brings everything in everything as being arbitrary and relative. And you say, well, uh, you know, uh, this should be or that shouldn't be, or you ought to do this or you ought to do that. Well, excuse me, where do you get your shoulds and oughts? Uh, because if you like something or don't like something, really all you're giving me is a personal psychology report. That's really all that you're giving me. Uh, and you say, well, the Holocaust was horrible. Well, not according to the Germans at that time it wasn't. It was exactly what they wanted to do. They would have called it good. Where do you get an absolute outside of mankind to say that anything is absolutely right or absolutely wrong? And really, once you remove God as the absolute moral lawgiver without any, and you say there's, there, there's no absolute moral laws, then really you're just left with uh, mankind operating on arbitrary uh, values. And even on the issue of evil, when I talk with an atheist, they'll, they'll say, oh, well, you Christians have a terrible problem because you say your God is good and there's all this evil in the universe. Well, you know what? I can explain evil. I, I understand its origin. I, I understand that the kingdom of darkness was created by an angelic being by the name of Lucifer of the class of cherubim who led a revolt in heaven and created the kingdom of darkness and that he expanded his kingdom of darkness to include the human race at the time of the historic fall of Adam and Eve, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. And I can understand that. And I also understand that evil will come to an end because there's going to come a point in time where God is going to destroy the current universe and the earth and create a new universe and a new earth. And uh, there will not be any evil. It will be dealt with. It, everything will, everyone who produces evil, because I can at least tie evil uh, to, to willful beings, both angels and people. And so I see uh, sin and evil as coming, uh, as being the product of people who produce it. That it doesn't just exist sort of like on its own, just sort of out there. But that when I look at sin and evil, I see it as, as existing in connection with the willful creatures who manufacture it. That sin and evil exist in connection with the willful creatures that manufacture it. Fallen angels, fallen mankind. So you want to look at the source of sin and evil? Look in the mirror. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't just exist out there. Uh, but if you, it, once you, once you again, you throw God out, then you just have to say that sin and evil really are just uh, an artificial construct. But at least I understand its origin. I understand what it is, 
and I understand how it's going to be dealt with. But for the atheist uh, who says there is no God, if evil does in fact exist, they must say it's natural to the creation. They must say it's natural to the creation. And if it's not natural to the creation, if it really does not exist outside of man, then really sin and evil, uh, what they call evil, really just becomes an artificial construct of the mind. There's just a tag that they put on something that they like or, or something that they don't like. And so they call this thing good. Well, that's just their personal opinion of what they like or what they don't like. And so we get into real problems here. And I think the atheist really, really has the bigger, the bigger problem. So again, when we think about the idea of evolution through natural selection, survival of the fittest, this is the most prominent and prevalent theory today. And by the way, to, to kind of push this a little bit further, uh, you know, I, I hear some people say, well, they don't like the way youth are acting today. You know, they're acting like animals. Well, excuse me, you go into the schools, you go into the elementary, junior high, high school and, and universities, and you teach evolution, you teach atheism and evolution, and that mankind is, is, there's no reason for us to exist in the rest of the animal kingdom. In fact, you put mankind amongst the rest of the animals. Well, why get upset when, when people act like animals? I mean, if that's all that we are. Oh, well, we should be better. Well, why should we? You know, if you have a pack of lions in the, uh, out on the Serengeti and they're staring at the last zebra on the planet and they're hungry, they're going to kill that animal and they're going to rip it to shreds and they're going to enjoy their lunch. And do you think they care one bit that they are driving an animal to extinction? No, they don't. They're going to wonder what's for dinner. They could care less. And so it really puts mankind in, a, in an awkward spot because there are people come along and say, oh, well, you know, I don't like the way people are behaving. Well, you know, if we're just part of the rest of creation and we're no different than the rest of the animals, why, why get upset when, when, when we behave like them, you see? And, and, you, and you can't have it both ways. Uh, and so it's just, it's just interesting to think about. So the idea of evolution through natural selection, uh, survival of the fittest, is the most prominent and prevalent theory that is set forth today. Dr. Chafer states here, and I'm quoting from major Bible themes, he says, quote, discovering himself in the midst of a wonderful universe and being the highest order of its physical creatures, man or mankind would naturally seek to understand his origin as well as the origin of all existing things. Because nature does not reveal the creation of man and tradition, and tradition would not be a reliable source of information, it is reasonable to expect that God would reveal the essential facts about man's creation in the Bible. In the early chapters of Genesis and elsewhere in the Bible, the creation of man is clearly taught in Scripture. End quote. Now, there are some, uh, some Christians who do hold to theistic evolution, and I think of C.S. Lewis, for example. <laughs> and, I, and I like Lewis. I read his writings. He's very thought-provoking. Uh, but I'm going to disagree with him on his view of theistic evolution. Uh, and so some hold to theistic evolution, holding that God used the evolution of natural process to create mankind. And so they try to bring in the view of evolution uh, started by uh, atheists uh, who want to try to explain mankind and the existence of everything independent of God, independent of any revelation. But this denies the biblical record which plainly states that God created the whole universe in six days. And I think that when one reads through Genesis and the rest of the Bible, it's not only plain that God created in six days, but I think the argument is very strong for a young earth, for a young earth, not one that goes back 
uh, billions of years. So in Genesis 1, we see where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the opening declaration of Genesis is, first of all, that God exists and that he is the one who created the heavens and the earth. The heavens being the universe, the earth being the earth. And the earth was created uh, like a blank canvas. In fact, the next text tells us that in verse 2, the earth was formless and void, tohu vabohu. Uh, is the Hebrew, and it means that basically the earth was created like a blank canvas, which God came in as a as a sculptor, as an artist, and he creates, and it's beautiful, and there's form, and there's beauty, and there's aroma, and there's space, and uh, it's, just, it's just amazing what he did. And so, and by the way, some would like to pack billions of years between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. I think that's a very, very weak argument. And again, I have very uh, brilliant uh, Bible scholars and theologians whom I love and have great regard for and have benefited from their teachings. I just don't agree with them. I think that's, I think that's wrong. Uh, I think here, when one looks at the biblical text, again, I think, that there's, uh, I think when one looks at the Bible, I think the argument is very strong for a young earth. And by young earth, I'm talking about you know, six to 7,000 years of age. Now we'll talk about uh, the Earth being created in with a in a state of maturity here in just a little bit, but the idea of a young Earth, uh, I think, is there. And again, there are other theologians that would say otherwise. And again, good and godly men whom I love and appreciate, uh, who would say that the that the universe is billions of years old, and they would pack that in there. But I think, I think just a plain reading of the text, I don't think you could get that. Also, when you look at the uh, creation. Uh, God created in six 24-hour days, and he called each day good. But you have this pattern that appears, like starting in verse 5. It says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning. Evening and morning. Now, that would speak of a, of a, one, of a single day, of a 24-hour rotation of the earth. There was evening and there was morning. One day. Now, some people say, oh, well, the use of the Hebrew word yom for day can refer to a, a long period of time. Well, maybe in a, in a few verses, in a few places, that's true. But not in this passage, especially when you connect it with the use of the Hebrew numerals. Uh, for example, uh, yom echad, the Hebrew numeral one. And so when you connect it with the Hebrew numeral and also the phrase there, there was evening and morning, one day, yom echad, that, that is just overwhelmingly... Uh, straightforward, that we're talking about one day. And so God created, he, he literally shaped the earth. He created everything in a, in a nanosecond when he spoke and brought it into being. But then he began to shape and sculpt the earth over six days. And throughout this um, shaping period, this creating shaping period, uh, you have this repetition of this phrase that there was evening and there was morning. One day, uh, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. And everything is called good, 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 very good. And so God is making this declaration about his own creation. Uh, and by the way, when you look at Exodus chapter 20, which, again, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, and this would have been uh, written uh, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, circa 1445 B.C. This is Moses uh, dealing with the Exodus generation who came out of Egypt. They're at the base of Mount Sinai, and they're receiving the Ten Commandments, which is the basis for the whole of the law, which is 613. And he says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
Hold for just a second. How would the Israelite at that time have understood this, uh, this statement here? And again, the Bible must be interpreted from the time and the culture within which it was written. So when the directive is set forth here saying, six days you shall labor and do all your work, well, that's six 24-hour days. They would not have thought of six million years or six billion years. They would not have thought of that. They would have understood it exactly as it's being put forth. Six days you're to labor. So God establishes the six-day work week and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. And notice Moses here then draws a one-for-one comparison. He says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Well, how would the Israelite have understood that? Okay, I'm to work six days, rest on the seventh. Oh, by the way, there's a one-for-one correlation there because God worked in six days and rested on the seventh. And that would be understood as six 24-hour days. And so again, when you interpret the Bible from the time and culture within which it was written, this is very straightforward. So these people who argue for long periods of time in the six days of creation, I I think it just breaks down. And I'll be honest, you know, uh, 30 years ago when I was very, 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 very young in the faith and really didn't know better, uh, I held to the billions of years. I believed in the gap theory between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 because the people that I was studying under had taught that. And I was very young and and I didn't know better, but the more that I began to study and listen to other views and find the biblical weight of evidence, because it's always the issue is what is the biblical weight of evidence, I moved away from that, and I think that the weight of evidence here is that God created in six 24-hour days, and I think the argument for a young earth is, excuse me, very, very compelling. But God created the universe, uh, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Nehemiah 9, 6, it says, you alone uh, are the Lord. You have made the heavens, uh, the heaven of the heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. <clears throat> Isaiah 42.5, it says, uh, The Lord, uh, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out and spread the earth uh, and spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to all people and spirit to those who walk in it. Now let me pause for just a second here. Because one of the arguments for uh, for an old earth has to do with the speed of light. And the argument, if I remember correctly, that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And so uh, light is used as a metric for determining distance. And so you, the argument is that, well, if light travels at this speed and we look at these um, uh, uh, stellar bodies that are you know, great distances away, then we can determine the age of the Earth, that we can look back and we can say uh, millions or billions of years because it takes light that long to travel. But what you have in uh, Genesis, excuse me, Isaiah 42.5, it says, The Lord who created the heavens and earth and stretched them out, and who stretched them out, well, see, now that's fascinating to me because it would say that when God created uh, the heavens that he stretched out the light itself such that it was visible to the human eye on the day that mankind was created, on day six, because God stretched out the universe. 
And so because he stretched it out, the light itself was stretched out to be visible again to the human eye. Because God created everything with the appearance of age. He, and I've said that before, I'm saying it again, and I'm going to get to that here in just a second. But he created everything with the appearance of age. But again, God created, Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. You see a bird created by God, designed to be a bird, uh, to fly in the atmosphere. Fish swim in the sea, created by God, designed to function in its environment. Uh, elephants out in the uh, wilderness in Africa or India, again, created by God to function in its environment. So God made the world and all things in it. And he created mankind, and mankind is special. Genesis uh, 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us, there's that implied plurality within the Trinity, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. According to our likeness. And so mankind is made in the image of God. We are theomorphs. Uh, We are finite analogs to God. And so we are created in the image of God, what is called the Imago Dei, the Imago Dei. And so God created mankind special. We are different than the rest of the created order. And we were created to function as theocratic administrators. God created us with a purpose, a purpose, not one that we have to manufacture arbitrarily as the existentialist would have us to believe, like the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre and others. But God created us and instilled in us not only uh, an identity, but a sense of purpose. To let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And people are to have responsible rule. Listen, there's no need for destroying the planet and for making a wreck of things and throwing trash out the window. That's nonsense. We are to be responsible stewards of the creation were to take care of it. And so God created mankind again to function as theocratic administrators. But notice verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And so the Bible only recognizes the two genders uh, that God himself created. Now mankind, now sin has corrupted the world and has created all sorts of problems and identity issues are surrounding that as well. But nonetheless, mankind was created special. Now, even after the fall, even after the fall, though sin has come into the human race, and we might say, and some would argue that man is, that the image is effaced but not erased. Mm, that's, you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm okay with that language because it's, it's in one sense marred by sin. Um, but nonetheless, the image of man is still retained is still retained. Uh, uh, Genesis 9, 6. Uh, God here says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made him. And so capital punishment here is, uh, is set forth, and this is human government established, by the way, when he says, Whoever sheds man's blood, there's murder, by man his blood shall be shed. Well, this establishes the basis for human government. And why take the life of a murderer? Because it deters crime? That's not what the Bible says. I think it does deter crime. Um, But nonetheless, the, the argument is that the murderer is to be put to death because he has attacked a fellow image bearer. 
He says, uh, by man uh, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So to attack another person is really an attack upon God himself because it's to attack a representative, an image bearer. But this idea that mankind still has intrinsic value, intrinsic value because God put it there, not uh, not something that we arbitrarily uh, conjure up and you know we say, oh, well, people have value. Well, on what basis do they have value? I mean, if they're just the accidental collection of molecules of matter, motion, time, and chance, where, where you know, how, how do they have value? And where do you get morals from? And again, we get into that argument. James 3.9 says, uh, talking about the abuse of the tongue here, he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Again, still recognizing that people are uh, valuable, that people are special because they are made in the image of God. And mankind is really God's crowning creation in which he authorized a mankind to rule over his creation. And you think of in Psalm 8, when it says, uh, the psalmist here says, when I consider uh, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, which you have ordained, what is man? that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Notice verse 5. You have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. Verse 6. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. So again, even in a fallen world, mankind still has uh, the responsibility of ruling over the creation. Now, God created the universe and the earth in six literal days and created everything with the appearance of age. So let me unpack this just for just a little bit here. When God created the universe, again, he created everything in a state of maturity. In a state of maturity, the universe was fully formed. It was already expanded. In fact, according to our passage back there in Isaiah, remember that the Lord who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, Okay, and stretch them out. So God stretched out the universe uh, such that all of the stellar bodies would have been immediately visible to the human eye because he stretched out the light to to be visible. And when God created everything, when he created the trees in the garden, for example, everything was created in a state of maturity with fruit hanging on them. Now, we have to be careful not to bring our presuppositions to uh, the biblical text because our presuppositions would say, oh, well, when I think about a tree, I think about a seed that fell into the earth and you had nutrients in the soil and there was some chemical reaction went on there uh, that, that went on, that occurred there and water was needed and nutrients from the water and then you had, as the plant develops, you had to have sunlight and you had to have proper environmental conditions with temperature and photosynthesis and the plant could then grow. And over a period of years, over a period of time, it will develop into a, into a, a, a full mature plant, a tree, for example, and that fruit will eventually come to bear and that that takes time. That takes time. Well, when God created, he created literally everything in a state of maturity such that if we had walked into the garden on day six, we would, not looked, we would not have looked at those trees and thought, well, gee, that's just a day or two old. We would not have thought that. And part of the argument for evolution is uh, predicated on this idea of what is called uniformitarianism, which you can Google that. But uniformitarianism is this idea that we can look at normal processes of, uh, of, of, of 
like degradation of something. Let's, let's take like the river that flows through the Grand Canyon. Well, the atheistic evolutionist would look at that and say, well, there's an erosion rate. That as the water flows through the canyon, it is eroding the canyon walls and creating this canyon. Uh, and let's say it's one inch per, I don't know, every couple thousand years. Well, what they do from that uh, erosion rate is they extrapolate back in time and they say, well, if this is the current erosion rate, then for this canyon to have formed, it would have taken millions of years. So you understand the line of reasoning here. What it fails to account, oh, is for things like a global flood, a global deluge that would have carved out a canyon in a very short period of time. Uh, and so to argue for uniformitarianism is to argue that the current state of of development or or erosion can be extrapolated back and that everything remains in this constant state. Uh, and so one can look back and use that as a metric for determining the age of the earth. But again, that just doesn't bear out. And it fails to account for uh, catastrophes. And one can think of the, of the global flood. But getting back to this issue of God creating everything with the appearance of age, when God created Adam on day six, as Genesis 2-7 reveals to us, I think it's Genesis 2-7, but he, 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 God comes into the garden in theophonic forms, he comes in in human form, and he begins to shape Adam from the dust of the earth. And so he's forming, Yatzer, he's forming biological life. And then it says that the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the Neshamah Chaim, and he became a living soul, a Nefesh. And so you have this material part of man and you have this immaterial part of man. Not only that, but God immediately begins to enter into conversation with Adam. Well, let's think about that for a second. So God must have imputed into the mind of Adam a bank of vocabulary and the ability to function uh, by forming uh, thoughts and words and speech and to be able to immediately enter into dialogue with God. Now, if we'd have walked into the garden on day six and we'd have seen Adam uh, talking with God, we would not have looked at Adam and thought, oh, you know, he's five minutes old. We would not have thought that. We would have thought that he's a fully developed adult, you know, maybe 20s, 30s. We don't know, you know, what he would have looked like, but certainly a functioning adult. So we have to be careful not to bring our presuppositions, our operating assumptions to uh, the biblical text, because that's not what the biblical text reveals to us. And so when we think about child development, when I look at a human being, if I look at my wife, for example, or anybody, I begin to look back and I say, well, you have parents and your parents uh, conceived you. And so you were conceived and you were brought into this world. And then you went through this normal developmental process of, of receiving nutrition and mental stimulation and physical stimulation and that you had to develop over time eye-hand coordination, you had to develop your fine motor skills, dexterity, uh, and then you had to develop the brain. So you go to school and you're taught and you take in the world and you begin to process this data and you begin to create categories. And then people help you assign tags to these categories, so things such as cats and dogs and birds and mice and fish and so on. Or you create your own categories, uh, tags for categories, and then you begin this thing called uh, cognitive uh, development in your mind and so you begin to grow over time and your vocabulary expands until you hit this place where you graduate from college and you can function at a certain academic level and you can think and speak and articulate at a certain level and it speaks of a level of development. 
Well, those assumptions, again, do not apply when you're looking at the biblical text. Because again, when God created Adam, and he created him both material and immaterial, body and soul, uh, and again, as a fully functioning adult, again, had we looked at Adam at the time that we saw him in the garden, or at the time when God took a rib from Adam and formed Eve, we would not, again, have thought, uh, uh, we would not have thought five minutes old uh, at the time that we saw them. Again, so those normal operating assumptions that we bring to the biblical text don't apply. The biblical text challenges those fundamental assumptions. And taking the Word of God in just a very straightforward way, again, when we look at the creation uh, from Genesis 1 and 2, uh, again, we see where God created the universe and the earth in six literal days. And some people say, oh, well, you know, that seems kind of quick, doesn't it? Six days? Not really. (laughs) I mean, God could have created everything in a nanosecond and just simply brought it into being. But there's intentionality with God. When he creates the six days, when he creates over six days, uh, it's because he's using that as a pattern, as a paradigm, as a template uh, for a later time period in which he is going to establish the work week. And so there's a one-for-one correlation there. So when God does this, there's intentionality there. There's intentionality there. And so we should realize this. Also, when God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, God from eternity past knew, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, knew that there would be a time that he would come into this world in hypostatic union. So when he's forming this first person, he knows that at at some point down the road in the future, he knows exactly when that would be, that he is going to take upon himself humanity. And so the body that he is forming must have some purpose down the road because he's going to take that body upon himself and carry that for all of eternity. And that body must be able to function as a representative from God to man and from man to God. And so there must be something within mankind where he can function as a finite analog uh, to the rest of the creation. Uh, And still you have in the hypostatic union, you have undiminished deity combined together with perfect humanity. But again, when God is creating, there's intentionality here and there's foresight whether you're talking about the six-day work week or you're talking about the doctrine of the hypostatic union, because all of these things come together, and you must take them in a very integrated way, that there's a, very, there's a great system of a doctrinal truth here that is very much tied together. It's like the spider web. It, it, you pull on the one strand, and the whole thing moves. And so what you're dealing with in Genesis affects what is going to happen later on, and so on. So again, God created the universe and earth in six literal days and created everything with the appearance of age. So let's talk about the nature of man. So the creation account reveals that man was created with both material and immaterial qualities. Again, going back to Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed Yatzer, he formed man. And by the way, Barah, when God created the heavens and the earth, Bereshit Barah Elohim et HaShemayim et HaAretz, God created Barah. It means to create out of nothing, that there's not any pre-existing material that God simply spoke and it, and it came into being. But here it says that God formed man. Well, uh, that's Yatser. That's a different word, and it means to create from pre-existing material. So God takes the dust of the earth. He forms the dust of the earth from the ground. And he forms the first man. So there's biological life. There's biological life. And he breathed into his nostrils. And one can imagine Adam there in bodily form. And God just, and he breathes. And Adam breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man at that moment becomes a living being. 
he becomes a living being. And so, a nefesh. And so, at that point, really, when you think about uh, the constitutionality of man, when you think about the construction of man, it is both it is both material and immaterial. It is biological and and soul life that is brought together. And that is really uh, what constitutes mankind, is both aspects. It's like a hand and a glove. They are intended to work together. And then you think of passages like uh, Ecclesiastes 12.7, which speaks of death, biological death. And it says, And the dust will return to the earth, that is, the body, and the spirit, the ruach, will return to God who gave it. So God gives uh, the spirit of man. And so you find these examples here where you have both the material and the immaterial aspects of mankind. Now, the immaterial parts of man, uh, soul and spirit, are sometimes used interchangeably. You do find passages where soul and spirit are used as interchangeable terms, and Dr. Ryrie would argue this point. But then you find other times where they are distinguished, like in 1 Thessalonians 5 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely in your spirit and your soul and your body. Now, there's debate among theologians, and this is one of those issues that I have not fully resolved in my thinking, uh, because there are good and godly people who argue biblically on either side of the issue. But the issue is whether man is dichotomous or trichotomous. To be dichotomous means to be cut in two, means your body and soul, and soul and spirit being interchangeable terms. Soul being the ability to function with other souls, people to people, spirit being the ability to function between uh, people and God. And so it would just argue, you know, at, is, it, is it more of a functional understanding? What do we do with that? Others would say that man, a kind, is trichotomous, that is cut into three parts, that we are body, soul, and spirit. And again, there's there's argument on either sides. I tend to be a trichotomous uh, person. But again, you know, Ryrie would say, well, those terms are used interchangeably. Love Ryrie, you know. So again, you just you just have to kind of wrestle with these issues. And and I'm I'm actually glad that some Christians wrestle. I think it's good that you wrestle. It means you're thinking about things. So on this issue, Chafer states, quote, according to the testimony of Scripture, man in his present form was created by God as the conclusion and consummation of all creation. Of man, it is said that he was made in the image and likeness of God, and that God breathed into him the breath of life. These distinctions classify man above all other forms of life which are upon the earth and indicate that man is a moral creature with intellect, capacity for feeling, and will." Now, there are two major views of the continued creation of man. So, you, so, so we say, okay, well, God created uh, Adam on day six, fine. But what do we do with the continued creation? Because now Adam and Eve were directed to procreate and to fill the earth. Okay, well, now they're involved in the ongoing creative process. Well, there's two views about the continued creation of man. One is called the Traducian theory, the Traducian theory, and this believes that the body and soul are passed from the parent to the child at conception. In other words, both the material and immaterial part of people come from dear old mom and dad. Okay, so you get both parts. Then there is what is called the creation theory. Now, the creation theory fits into one of two camps, but the creation theory basically argues that our body comes from our parents, 
that is biological life. You got your good looks from mom and dad. But that God creates each new human soul at conception and imputes it to the biological life in the womb. And I think passages like Ecclesiastes 12.7 uh, makes a, a compelling argument for this. It, again, when it says, and the dust will return to the earth, and the spirit will return to God who gave it, to God who gave it. So then some would say, well, the traducingists would say, well, yes, God gave it immediately through the parents. Immediately, that is, through the agency of the parents. Whereas the creationists would say, no, uh, God gives it immediately uh, to the biological life in the womb to the biological life in the womb at conception. So again, there's an argument to be made on either side. The point is, is that human life continues. People are both material and immaterial at the end of the day. That is what the Bible teaches. Uh, how that process happens is open for discussion. But clearly mankind continues to function as, um, as finite analogs to God, as theomorphs, that we are made in the image of God, and that that still continues to be the case. Okay. Uh, so moving on, the body is the residence of the soul. It is the residence of the soul, which is removed at physical death. Again, Ecclesiastes 12.7, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's the separation. And death, by the way, does not mean cessation in the Bible. In, in, in modern biology, death would be cessation of life. And even biologists have a hard time understanding what is life. I mean, really to define and to understand what exactly is life. What is the animating force that, that moves us, you know? Uh, are we just, um, you know, are, are we just, you know, biological machines with uh, some electrical impulses that work throughout our nervous system? Can all of our thoughts and feelings and aspirations be reduced to electrical chemical impulses in the brain, uh, you know, with neurons firing and so on? You know, so it just, it raises questions about, you know, what is life, Okay, so they have a big, a big uh, uh, question about that. But the Bible teaches that at physical death, and death, again, not being cessation of life, but separation, the separation of the soul from the body. And resurrection is the reversal of that. It reunites the soul with the body. And the original body, by the way. So the body you have now, if it's destroyed at sea, if it's destroyed in a big explosion, if a nuclear bomb were to land on my house, if my house were ground zero for a, a nuclear bomb, um, and all of this was incinerated, well, God will bring all these molecules back together, and this body will be reunited with this soul at a future time in a perfect state, never to be separated again. So again, the body is the residence of the soul, which is removed at physical death. The body is also where the sin nature resides the sin nature, which is that proclivity to sin. And I'll talk more about that here in a, little, uh, in a lesson or two when we get into the subject of sin, homardiology. So the body is also where the sin nature resides in both saved and unsaved persons. So if you're unsaved, you got a sin nature. If you're saved, you still got a sin nature, which is that proclivity to sin. And the sin nature takes us in all sorts of directions. For some, it is in the form of self-righteousness, power, greed, lust, hatred, worry, um, maybe alcoholism, drug addiction, pornography. I mean, the sin nature takes us into all sorts of directions. And one person's sinful proclivity is going to be different than the next person's sinful proclivity. But the sin nature still continues to reside in the body. And the body of the Christian is also the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who dwells in us. 
Uh, quoting Dr. Chafer again, he says, quote, The bodies of the saved will be transformed, sanctified, saved, and redeemed, and finally glorified forever at the coming of Christ for his church. Jesus Christ possessed a perfect human body. Therefore, his death, uh, before his death, uh, let me read that again. Uh, Chafer again says, Jesus Christ possessed a perfect human body before his death, and after his resurrection had a body of flesh and bone that is the pattern of the believer's resurrection body, end quote. Uh, so let's move on to our next lesson. Let's talk about the man, uh, mankind at his fall, the historic fall of mankind. Now, according to Chafer, quote, the early chapters of Genesis record the fall into sin by Adam and Eve. The various interpretations of this record either take it as a literal event explaining the sinfulness of the human race or attempt to explain it away as unhistorical or myth. The orthodox interpretation, however, is that the event took place exactly as recorded in Scripture, and this is the way it is treated in the rest of the Bible, end quote. Now, he talks about explaining it away as unhistorical as myth, and there are some Christian circles, some liberal Christian circles, and in my undergraduate degree, uh, which at the time I got into, I did not realize that I was getting into a very, very, very liberal, uh, quote, Christian university. And when I got in there, all of my professors uh, did not believe that the Bible was inherent. They would call it the Word of God, but then they would systematically tear it down, uh, pointing faults out in Scripture. They held to, they held to, interestingly enough, anti-supernaturalistic presuppositions. Uh, they would say, oh, well, the universe is billions of years old. Uh, um, evolution is, is the process. They held to the, the atheistic, sign, sign, quote, scientific argument rather than the plain reading of the Bible. And um, it was really kind of interesting to me because they would say, well, demons don't really exist and, and uh, demon-possessed people. Well, that, those were just psychological disorders that they didn't know what to do with. But fortunately, today we have the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. What are we up to? Version 5 now. And that helps us to understand all these psychological disorders. And we trust that, but we don't trust the Bible. Oh, and Jesus didn't really walk on the water uh, because supernatural things don't really happen. Uh, he just found the sandbar, you know, and so it appeared that he was walking on water. So that sort of stuff. And, you know, and, and you, you get presented with that and you're just like, what, what, what are you talking about? And it caught me off guard, and it took me a while to figure out uh, what was being promoted. And then I wound up having to uh, study these things independently of my uh, academic training, as liberal as it was, and had to fight for my faith <laughs> uh, in spite of what I was being taught. I wound up switching majors over uh, from a degree in uh, biblical studies to a degree in human services, which is what my undergraduate degree is in. But there are some who treat the Bible uh, in a non-literal way and take it more as unhistorical or myth or myth. And that, and that, is, that is something that you will find. That is something that you will find. So let's talk about, from a biblical perspective, let's talk about Adam before the fall. Adam before the fall. So Adam and Eve were created sinless and placed in the perfect environment that God prepared for them. And after their initial creation, God declared uh, everything as very good, as very good. Now, the first couple represented the human race at that time, both federally and seminally. Federally, as uh, Adam represents, is the, is the representative of the whole human race. And seminally, because we were all in the loins of Adam. 
And so Adam and Eve's rebellion against God introduced sin into the human race. Now, one of the things that I argued last time in the last session when I was talking about Satanology is that when we understand that the first sin that took place took place in heaven by an angel of the class of cherubim by the name of Lucifer, who from the source of his own pride manufactured sin and led a rebellion and convinced a third of the angels to follow him. But this created the kingdom of darkness. Satan's kingdom of darkness was expanded to include the earth at the time of the historic fall of Adam and Eve, so that it expanded to the earth. And this is why three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Why in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the god of this world. Why Ephesians 2.2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. And why 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And why Isaiah 14.12 tells us that he has weakened the nations. And why Revelation 12.9 tells us that he deceives the whole world. And why Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, when Jesus offered, excuse me, when Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world, he said, For these have been given over to me, and I give them to whomever I wish. And I take the historic fall as the time when Satan took possession of this world. When Satan took possession of this world. So, uh, at the time of Adam and Eve's rebellion uh, against God, this introduced sin, human sin, into the human race. And this is why you have passages uh, throughout the New Testament where the New Testament writers treat Adam and Eve as historical persons who lived in time and space. And they treat the fall of Adam and Eve as an actual historical event. And Paul, in Romans 5.12, says, Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin, which is a real thing, entered into the world. Notice it entered into the world. So it was through Adam. Adam is the gateway uh, through which sin came into the world. And he manufactured sin from the source of his own volition, the same way Lucifer and the fallen angels manufactured sin. It was from the source of their own volition. Okay, And then he says, And death through sin and death through sin. So spiritual death, and then later physical death, but all forms of death came into the world through sin, which Adam produced through one man. Notice the latter part of verse 12. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, when did we all sin? Well, we all sinned when Adam sinned. Because as goes Adam, so goes the human race. As goes Adam, so goes the human race. And so death spread to all men. And by the way, uh, if the Lord tarries and does not come back uh, anytime soon, well, then we are all going to face death because last time I checked, the mortality rate is still 100%. And so we're all going to face death uh, if the Lord tarries. Now, there are two exceptions to that in the Old Testament. One is Enoch, one's Elijah. And there are some people who died twice because, remember, Jesus healed, not didn't heal some people, but he, he resuscitated some people and brought them back to, to, to life. And so he raised them from the dead. But resuscitation is not the same as resurrection. Resuscitation means they were brought back to life only to die again. So you do have two people who did not see death, Enoch and Elijah, and you have some people who died twice. But apart from those few exceptions, uh, for the rest of us, it, we will die once. That is, that is the general rule. And that's why the passage in the scripture that says it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, that is a, that is a general truth. There are exceptions in there, of course. Uh, but anyway, I digress. But nonetheless, death spread to all, all mankind, because all sinned. 
1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, For since by a man, as we're talking about one person, came death, both spiritual and physical, by a man, that's Jesus, came the resurrection of the dead, because he is the first to be resurrected uh, with a resurrection body that will never die. Notice verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, we are all born into this world in Adam, and by faith we transition to being in Christ. Only to those who trust in him and Savior are transitioned as being uh, moved over uh, spiritually to being in Christ, in Christo. That prepositional phrase Paul uses many, many, many times throughout his writings. It is an identification truth, a wonderful identification truth at that. Now, Adam's descendants, after the fall, are said to be born in his likeness. Notice that. In Genesis 5.3, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to him, his image. Well, Adam's uh, has been now marred by sin, so he has a, a fallen nature. But when he gives birth, that when his son comes into the world, his son is born in his own likeness, that is, in his fallen likeness. And according to his image, that is his fallen image. Now, there's still the retaining of the image of God, effaced but not erased, uh, to use a phrase which I heard first by Dr. Andy Woods. I love Dr. Woods. He's a great teacher. Um, but here we have this, um, this idea that Adam's descendants, which is all of us, that we are born in his likeness. Now, the exception to that is going to be Christ, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. So, the record of Adam and Eve's sin is set forth in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And in that passage, Satan, in the form of a serpent, and he comes as the, in the form of a serpent. Now, whether he took that form or whether he indwelt that form, uh, one cannot be dogmatic on the scriptures. But nonetheless, he comes in the form of a serpent, which coming in the form of a creature that Eve didn't have to look up to, because there were dinosaurs on the earth back then, but a creature that she had to look down upon probably would not have made her uh, felt threatened. And also, uh, coming from, again, a lower position, coming in the form of a creature, probably would not have made her feel uh, uncomfortable. Now, the fact that uh, Satan comes and, and takes this form and then talks to her, well, she might not have had precedence to know that you know, all the animals couldn't speak because she's very young, she's very immature, there's certain things she doesn't know. So she may not have, have had a reference point for this. So Satan in the form of a servant is what, in the form of a serpent is what is uh, presented in the scripture, approached Adam and Eve and enticed them to rebel against the only negative command that God had given. And that was the command saying, uh, they, he said, well, from, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You shall not eat. And notice what he says, For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so death would be certain in the day. And a death did occur at the time when they ate the forbidden fruit. Uh, a, an actual death occurred. It was a spiritual death. Not a physical death. That would occur later. Uh, so Satan's enticement started with a question about what God said. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So notice he comes with the form of a question, uh, which implied which implied in the question 
was that God was withholding some good, some good thing from them. And Eve's, and according to Chafer, he says, quote, Eve in her reply fell into Satan's trap. Uh, well, let me read on here. Let me not get ahead of myself. So verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it. Now, Eve comes along and she adds this, uh, this, these extra words in here. Now, that's not what God said. And so there's a modification here, because there was never the command that, that they couldn't touch it. I mean, if they wanted to go up and hug the tree, they could hug the tree. In fact, they could pull fruit off the tree and juggle the fruit. They could sniff the fruit, they could rub it on their body, they could smash it and make it into a pie. Uh, they could have done all sorts of things with the fruit. They could have had a food fight. They could have thrown at each other and smacked each other in the forehead. They could have had fun with the, with the fruit of the tree. So this whole idea that they were not to touch it, you see, that's, that's not what the text says. And then the serpent, uh, in verse 4, well, once he realizes that there's a little bit of ambiguity there in Eve's thinking, he then goes in. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. You surely will not die. Well, that is at flat out a lie, and it is contrary to uh, what God himself has said. Now, Eve is left with really one or two options to try to resolve this conflict. One is that she could have gone to God. She could have gone to the Lord and consulted the Lord on the matter. Or she could have relied on experience, which is what she does. And so she decides to make experience the measure of truth. And so she goes and she partakes of the fruit herself, but at that point she's crossed the line. And now there's no going back. And so she really should have looked to the Lord to guide her uh, in this particular matter. But instead, she looks to Satan. And she says, well, I will be the determinant, and I will let my experience uh, guide me in that. But in that sense, she disobeys the Lord and experiences spiritual death. So the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Uh, and then he throws out, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, rather than die, your eyes will be opened. So see, it, 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 you'll have wisdom. And not only that, but you will be like God. Now, don't miss that phrase there, because that was the sin that brought Satan down. That was the sin that brought Satan down. Because remember, in Isaiah 14, uh, his desire was that he would be like the Most High. And I think that it's very strong, possible, can't be dogmatic, but I think that was the same pitch that he gave to the angels in heaven, and a third of which fell for it. And Eve here falls for it, too. And so the argument is that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, it was beautiful, it was apparently a very attractive tree. And then from her uh, skewed frame of reference here, uh, she also thought that the tree was desirable to make one wise, because she bought into Satan's line. She took from its fruit and ate and gave to her husband, uh, who was with her, and he ate. And that's a little troubling to me because Adam was there the whole time watching this, apparently. I always thought when I was a kid that Adam was off on some journey, maybe tilling the garden somewhere or doing something else. But the text tells us that she, that she took from his fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her. And so apparently Adam failed in his duties as a man 
uh, to intervene in this matter, that he should have intervened, he should have stopped the discussion, he should have intervened, he should have provided uh, divine viewpoint counsel because he had God's revelation too, uh, but apparently he didn't. Uh, and so uh, he that she gave to her husband with her, <clears throat> and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And then we have Operation Fig Leaf here, where they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings, uh, made themselves loin coverings. So they're now trying to cover up their sin. This is human works. God is going to reject Operation Fig Leaf. He's going to kill an animal, take their skins, shed blood give them to them as coverings, and so they will accept that, and I think that's the moment of their conversion. Let me get back to the notes here. According to Chafer, Eve in her reply fell into Satan's trap by leaving out the word freely in God's permission to eat of the trees of the garden, and she left out also the word surely in God's warning. The natural tendency of man to minimize God's goodness and to magnify his strictness are familiar characteristics of human experience ever since, end quote. So Satan's question to Eve turned out uh, turned out turned so Satan's question to Eve turned to be an outright contradiction in which he told her you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it uh, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil so the Bible states in Genesis 3:6 when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So now after the fall now Adam and Eve's sin resulted in far-reaching and long-lasting consequences and these four points here presented are taken verbatim from major Bible themes pages 173 and 174. Uh, point number one, they became subject to both physical and spiritual death. Point number two, God's judgment also fell upon Satan and the serpent was condemned to crawl on the ground. Point number three, a special judgment also fell on Eve who would experience pain in giving birth to children and would be required to submit to her husband. Uh, so apparently there was some pain associated with birth, but uh, apparently this was greatly increased. And point number four, a special curse fell on Adam and he was assigned to hard labor, to the hard labor of bringing forth from the soil now cursed with thorns and thistles, the necessary food for his continued existence. And of course, sin has also impacted the entire creation. Romans 8.22, Paul says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So the whole creation itself was impacted by sin. By the way, the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve not only just impacted the earth, but apparently it impacted the whole creation such that in order for God to deal with sin, this, this is the seriousness and the scope of the impact of sin upon the universe itself, that in Revelation 21 and 22, God must destroy the current heavens and the earth, that is the universe and the earth, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth, a whole new universe and a new earth, and this in order to expunge sin and its impact upon the creation. So the effects of sin, of Adam's sin upon the race. The sin of Adam and Eve brought immediate spiritual death, which means their relationship with God was severed. By grace, God restored their relationship by providing a sacrifice and a covering which they accepted. So we have in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin 
And again, an animal had to have died. Did Adam and Eve see this? Did they watch this animal be put to death? Uh, did they see its blood shed? I, I think perhaps they did. And then God takes the skin of the animal and forms it into clothes and gives it to them. And I think that this early form, uh, that this early, that this act gives them an idea early on about the idea of substitution, that, that there must be the shedding of blood, that there must be death, a substitutionary death, that the animal's going to die, and they're going to take these skins and wear them because the animal's life has been taken. And so I think that even though they started out with Operation Fig Leaf and decided to cover themselves as a means of hiding their sin, God rejects that as he rejects all human works, and then he provides a covering. And so he gives it to them. And I think at the moment they reached out and took that from the hand of God, I think that was the moment of their being born again. And so the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Uh, moving on in the notes here. However, Adam and Eve would live out their days with a fallen nature and a fallen world. Adam's sinful nature would pass to all his descendants, and the effects of sin would become more and more obvious as time uh, progressed. In Scripture, we learn about several important imputations. An imputation here is like a depositing. It's like accrediting something to someone's account. Uh, we learn about several important imputations that concern our relationship with God. First is the imputation of Adam's original sin to every member of the human race. So Adam's original sin is passed on to every member of the human race, Jesus being the exception. And again, we looked at Genesis 5.3, where uh, Adam gave birth to a son who was in his likeness according to his fallen image. Romans 5.12, for just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all people, all mankind, because all sinned. And uh, 1 Corinthians 15.21 and 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And listen, just as Christ was an actual historical person, so Adam was an actual historical person. These are both historical people. Adam is historical, Christ is historical, lived in real time, real space, real people. And that's the way the Bible treats them. So with regard to Adam's original sin, this means that every biological descendant of Adam is charged with the sin that he committed in the Garden of Eden, which plunged the human race into spiritual death. Jesus, of course, is the only exception. For though he is truly human, and he is truly human, and we have, uh, we have genealogical accounts. If you look at, like, Matthew, uh, we have the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, uh, the son of David, Wiu Dawid, Wiu Abraham, the son of Abraham. And so you have these, this genealogical record uh, concerning uh, the biological descendants of Jesus. Uh, but then you get down to the time of the virgin conception, the parthenogenesis, in which Mary, who is Christotokos, she's the bearer of the humanity of Christ, conceives in her womb, but she does so supernaturally by means of the Holy Spirit, because Joseph was not his biological father. And that was necessary, because the sin nature is passed on from the father to the child, not the mother. And so, uh, Joseph, uh, being excluded from this conception process, means that she was virgin conceived. She was virgin conceived. And so, in fact, it uses the word parthenos for her, which is the Greek word for virgin. And so parthenogenesis is just a theological term that means virgin conceived, virgin born. But, but a, 
a biological human life, a, hu a truly human life, could be imputed into the womb of the Virgin Mary at, uh, at the time of conception, minus Adam's original sin, because that is where it is broken. So Jesus is truly human, born of a woman. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 says he was born of a woman, born under the law. And so Jesus was born without original sin. He did not have a sin nature, and he committed no personal sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he has been tempted in all ways as we are, uh, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.2 says, While being reviled in return, he... Um, Oh, oh, there it is, First uh, Peter 2.22. Uh, speaking of Jesus, and it says that who committed no sin. And then in 1 John 3.5, it says that in him there is no sin. So very clear, the scriptural account. So Jesus is the exception to that. Second, the imputation of all sin. Uh, the second imputation that we find in history. So the first one is Adam's original sin that is imputed to all mankind. The second imputation is all of our sin imputed to Christ upon the cross. In other words, all of our sin was taken and placed upon Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. That is, healed spiritually in our relationship with God. Uh, again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So our sin was placed upon Christ while he was on the cross. This is an imputation. This doesn't mean that Christ produced sin. He didn't produce any sin. But our sin was placed upon him. Now the flip side to that is at the moment of faith in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's called the gift of righteousness. But 1 Peter uh uh, 221, uh, talking about Christ who suffered. And it says here in 1 Peter 224 that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. You see, that's his that's his humanity bearing our sins, because deity cannot die, but humanity can. And I've already dealt with the doctrine of the hypostatic union and some of the complexities related to that. But again, it says that in his own body. Uh, he bore our sins upon the cross. And so uh, the first imputation uh, with regard to sin is Adam's sin imputed to all of the human race. The second imputation has to do with all of our sins placed upon Christ who is on the cross. And so here God the Father took every sin of every person and imputed it to Christ while he was on the cross. Hebrews 2.9 says that he uh, tasted death for everyone that he might taste death for everyone. And 1 John 2, 2 tells us that he himself is the propitiation, that is the satisfaction, halasmos, that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And God the Father judged Jesus in our place. In our place. Mark ten forty five says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Penal, he bore the penalty for our sin. Substitutionary, he died in our place. Atonement, his life paid the price for our sins. In fact, the blood of Christ that was shed upon the cross is the coin of the heavenly realm 
It's the only coin of the heavenly realm that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. Okay? So, God the Father judged Jesus in our place, Romans 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And the word for there is the Greek preposition huper, huper. And it means that he died as our substitute. He died in our place. So, again, very straightforward. So, God the Father judged Jesus in our place, canceling our sin debt by the death of Christ. Colossians 2.13 and 14 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins. Now, he could do so because Christ was judged for those sins. He bore those sins upon the cross. Verse 14, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the first imputation is Adam's original sin to all mankind. All of our sin, which included Adam's original sin, imputed to Christ upon the cross, such that he was made to be judged in our place. And then third is the imputation of God's righteousness to those who believe in Jesus for salvation. The imputation of God's righteousness to those who believe in Jesus for salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, again, he made him, that is God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him the righteousness of God in him. In fact, in Romans uh, 4, verses 3 through 5, it says, For what does the scripture say that Abraham believed God and it was credited? That's imputation. That it was imputed to him uh, as righteousness. He goes on, he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not uh, credited or treated as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, in other words, does not produce any human good works. Good works should follow salvation, but they're never the condition of it. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, later on, in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, uh, the Apostle Paul is actually going to call it the gift of, of righteousness, the gift of righteousness. So this gift of righteousness means that we receive the very righteousness of God. The very righteousness of God is credited to our account. It is given to us as a gift. And Paul in Philippians 3.9, speaking of his former manner of life in Judaism and his upbringing as religious as it was, uh, Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of in in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my lord for whom i have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish uh, so, uh, so that i may gain Christ now now that's a that's a that's a nice uh, translation may count them but rubbish the greek word that is used there for rubbish just as an aside is the greek word skubalon Scubalon, and it is the word for human excrement, fecal matter. You can you can put in the word. <laughs> you know you know what he's talking about here. And I count and I count all things, and I count them, uh, but scubalon. 
uh, and that's his value of, of human works, because human works never save. So that what? I may gain Christ, verse 9, and may be found in him that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Don't miss that. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But that, that is that righteousness which come, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So, so whatever damage uh, Adam, specifically Adam, but Adam and Eve caused at the time of the fall, Christ has undone at the cross. He has undone it at the cross. And this is why the cross is so important to understand. Uh, and that's why I mentioned these three imputations here. So anyway, um, I hope that this lesson has been helpful to you and, uh, and that you have benefited from it. And next time we pick up, we will move into hamartiology, hamartiology, which is the study of sin itself. And I thank you for taking the time to watch this video, and I wish you a blessed day.